Be Christ's church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Acts 23, beginning in verse 12, is where we'll be as we see Paul making uh, the trek from Jerusalem to Caesarea, but not necessarily in the way that we might expect. And if you're new to North Roanoke, we're so thankful that you're here. Uh, we generally just work our way through books of the Bible, which means that we, uh, we preach the portions of text that the preacher probably wouldn't preach if he didn't do that, because they're challenging, they present ideas that are hard to figure out. Uh, and this morning is kind of one of those texts. Stacy all week has been saying, I can't wait to find out what you do with the next set of verses. Because it's just like, it's just a narrative. It's just a story. Like, like what are you going to, how are you going to apply this to anybody's life? And uh, it was funny when she asked me that uh, late last week, because I said, I have no idea what I'm going to do with that text. Um, so we're all going to find out together uh, this morning. When we get to verse 12 of chapter 23, Paul has been navigating a great deal of adversity in his life. Have you ever navigated some adversity in your life? Never? Well, praise God. You will by tomorrow probably then. Uh, Since arriving in Jerusalem, Paul has faced a divided church. He's faced a violent Jewish crowd at the temple. He's faced Roman imprisonment and interrogation. He's faced an angry reception with the Sanhedrin, the temple leadership. And by this point, one commentator says this, Paul's chances of surviving the attacks of the angry Jews and the mighty Romans resemble that of a butterfly before a steamroller. And yet, Paul's alive. He's still here. And King Jesus' promises and presence remain in Paul's life. We saw that as we trailed off a couple of weeks ago in verse 11. We saw that Jesus appears to Paul in the Roman barracks and reminds Paul, Hey, I'm with you. I haven't abandoned my promises to you. You will get to Rome. I still have a reason for you to get to Rome. So despite the seemingly impossible odds for Paul, Paul is there. And he is serving a faithful God. A God who is working even when it seems that we are captive to forces and people who have no knowledge of Jesus or regard for him. And that's good news. Because we're in a society and a culture that often has no knowledge of Christ, or if they do, know about him, no regard for him. But King Jesus, as we're going to see in a moment, stands over it all. After, Je- after Paul's vision of Jesus, we might expect him now to get to Rome quickly, right? Well, Jesus showed up in the barracks. He says, I'm going to Rome. So like by tomorrow, I should find myself in Rome. Does anybody else think that way? Like, God clarifies something in your life. This is what you're supposed to do. This is the mission that I'm giving you in your life. And you're like, okay, well, tomorrow everything's going to be great. Well, by the end of chapter 24, to skip ahead a little bit, we find out that Paul still isn't in Rome. God is faithful. He issues calls upon our life. He, he gives us direction, but that doesn't mean it always proceeds in a straight line. It doesn't mean it's always easy. 
So, so much of Paul's life demonstrates to us that faithfulness to God doesn't always lead to amazing success as the world defines success. Faithfulness to Christ often looks like patiently and even painfully waiting on Him. All right, God, I believe you, but when's it going to happen? It looks like seeking Him, crying out to Him. It looks like Paul's life, trusting Him even when the fulfillment of His promises seems impossible or incredibly unlikely. Okay, Lord, I'm going to be in Rome, but I'm in a barracks in Jerusalem with no control over my travel plan. How's that going to work out? You say, well, well, that just doesn't seem right because the gospel I heard was if I trust in Jesus, then all my dreams are going to come true and I'm going to go to Disneyland and get a Corvette and a house with 2.3 kids and I'm never going to get cancer or have any problems in my life. Where's that in the Bible? It's not in the Bible. Following Jesus is about patience. It's about waiting. It's about endurance. How, how do we learn patience if everything happens immediately and according to our plan? Anybody pray like that? Your Lord Jesus, whatever your will. And by the way, here's my plan. If that could be your will, that'd be great. How, how do we learn endurance if we don't face opposition or adversity? Elsewhere, Paul says to us that God's power is demonstrated in our weakness, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Not in our efforts. God's power is not demonstrated in our effort. It's not demonstrated in our strength. It's not demonstrated when we do stuff to be able to say that we did stuff. Or to say, look at how amazing I am. And at this point in the story, by the way, Paul can't really do anything anyway. I mean, what's Paul going to do? He's, he's in the Roman barracks in Jerusalem under Roman guard. And yet Jesus says, I'm going to get you to Rome. i got a mission for you in Rome. Okay, God. What can Paul do other than rely on God? Now, eventually, Paul's going to get to Rome. But not today. This morning, we're going to be reminded that we sometimes know God is at work because we see Him doing inexplicably good things, right? Sometimes we just see God show up and move, and it's amazing, and it's great, and there's a moment. And I'm, my concern is that's what we always want. We want the miracle. We want the moment. We want the wow, the revival. Everything was amazing. But, but more often than not, Paul's life shows us that God's at working even when we don't see those things. God is always working. And it's more often the case that God is working not because we see something amazing, but because God is God. And we know He's working. God is always working to advance His purposes. He's always keeping His promises, even when it seems nothing miraculous or momentous is taking place. And some of you just need to be reminded of that this morning. In the mundane of your life, God is at work. In Paul's case, the work, as we're going to see, must be God's because, human, humanly speaking, things go from bad to worse in Jerusalem, and yet Paul is still protected by God and launched further towards Rome. So this morning, we're going to be reminded that even when we face trials, anybody facing a trial today, even in the middle of a trial, God is there and He's working. We're going to be reminded that even when we face impossibly uh, challenging odds in following Jesus, when it feels like the world is closing in on you and there's no hope, God is still in control. Facing challenges doesn't mean that God's plan has changed. Let, let me say that again. Facing challenges doesn't mean God's plan has changed. 
Facing adversity doesn't mean God has hidden his face or revoked his plans to use his people for his glory. If you know Christ, he wants to use you for his glory. Would you hear with me the word of the Lord starting in verse 12 of Acts 23? When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Paul is in the barracks. He has no idea this is going on. And the first thing I want to show you from this text and from this situation is that we need to understand as believers that we're going to be opposed if we're on mission for King Jesus. We've seen that already in Paul's life, but we just keep seeing it. If you follow Jesus, you will face opposition. In in these verses, In these verses, we see the greatest resistance to people who live on mission for Jesus sometimes comes not from the civil government, but from other religious people. (laughs) He's opposed not by Rome right now, he's opposed by Jews. Jews who are resisting the message of a gracious gospel that it's not about what you can do, but it's about what God has done in Christ. And that upends the Jewish way of thinking and the Jewish way of life, and they are tragically rejecting their king. In verse 11, Jesus reassures Paul of his calling on his life and his presence with him. But then in in verse 12, do you see how verse 12 starts? The very next day, (laughs) right after Jesus showed up in Paul's life, like he had a vision of Jesus in the barracks. Man, this is amazing. Life is going to be great. I've got King Jesus at my side. The very next day, somebody plans to kill Paul. Man, this reminds me, if, if you were here when we went through the book of Esther, you remember the book of Esther, and there's Haman and Mordecai. Haman is the enemy of the, the people of God, and he's the enemy of Mordecai, and he makes this plan in the middle of the book. He, he builds a gallows, and he's like, I'm going to hang Mordecai on the gallows, and whoo, it's not going to be good for the Jewish people. And then what happens? The king has a dream overnight, or he can't sleep overnight. And then God just somehow directs him of all the things that a king could do in the middle of the night when he can't go to sleep. He says, I want to read the official record book of the kingdom. And he happens to read about Mordecai, who had acted to save his life from a plot years before, and Mordecai hadn't been honored. So Haman is going to the king to tell the king, we need to kill Mordecai, and the king has just read about Mordecai and how Mordecai saved his life, and Haman shows up to say, hey, we need to kill Mordecai, and the king's like, Mordecai saved my life, I want to honor him. And then where does Haman end up? Hanging on his own gallows. From the Old Testament through to the New Testament, our king is a king who is always working behind the scenes. He's working behind the scenes in Esther and he's working behind the scenes in our story. Some Jews had apparently grown tired of waiting to get rid of Paul. They're over it. Like, can we just destroy Paul already? The the false accusations they bring about Paul bringing Gentiles into the inner court of the temple still haven't worked out. He still hasn't been killed. 
the, tribute, the tribune could not establish that Paul was guilty, and the rest of the issues that they were debating were just a, a theological debate, not a reason to punish or destroy Paul. So these Jews want to get rid of Paul. They're like, what are we going to do to get rid of him? We'll just kill him. They want nothing to do with the risen Christ or anyone who's on mission for him. Instead, they're ready to put an end to Paul and the, the threat that he represents to their self-understanding and their way of life. So more than 40 Jewish men, that's a lot of guys, against one guy, they conspired with the chief priests and elders to concoct a plan to do away with Paul. Now this is interesting to me that they go to the chief priests and elders and apparently leave out the Pharisees. Because you remember how Paul got in the barracks? He was before the council and he divided the council by bringing up the resurrection of the dead. And the Pharisees are like, we're with Paul because he believes in the resurrection of the dead. So they're fighting each other. So they just go to sort of the Sanhedrin side of the council, the chief priests and the elders, and they're like, hey, let's work together and get rid of Paul. And these 40 assassins are dead set on Paul's death. In verse 12 and in verse 14, we read the same words. They had bound themselves by an oath to taste nothing until they killed Paul. Literally, the text says they cursed themselves with a curse. The, the point is this. They are really committed to killing Paul. So committed, they're saying, if we don't kill Paul, let us be accursed. And... It's, it's not eating. Is, does anybody want to have lunch today? I mean, it's, it's a good idea. Um, and if you skip lunch, are you going to want dinner? Probably. And if you skip lunch and dinner, when you wake up tomorrow, you're going to want some breakfast probably. Like, what's the point of we're not even going to eat till we kill Paul? Is We're going to do it fast. We're going to take care of this guy. They want to kill him. They want to kill him quickly. And they say, if we fail, then let us be accursed. I suspect they probably didn't keep their oath when God ends up delivering Paul, as we're going to see, but they sure enough confirmed that they were an accursed people. So if you're in Jerusalem and you need to murder somebody quickly, where do you go? You go to the Jewish leadership, which is ironic, isn't it? The, the keepers of the law, the ones who know the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder and yet they go to the Jewish temple officials and the leaders and the keeper of the law. I mean, they had already been enlisted in a murder of an innocent man a few decades before. Why not do it again? In verse 15, they ask the chief priests and elders to be accomplices. And of course, they offer them plausible deniability. Just tell the tribune that you're going to help him finally get to the bottom of the Paul issue and we'll take care of him before he ever even gets close. In other words, you won't even ever see Paul. Nobody will know about your involvement. We got you covered. Here's the reality, church. If we live on mission for King Jesus, we're going to face hostility. We might even face a murderous plot like Paul did. Hostility toward people who follow Jesus still happens. It happens even in our country. There was a time in our country that Christians, it may have seemed like they were on the home team with the government, with the governing authorities, with the officials. I'm here to tell you, we're not on the home team anymore. You got the home team and the home gym with the home officials. Sometimes you get some home cooking. Christians are not getting home cooking in the halls of Congress, in the White House. They're not getting home cooking uh, over in Richmond. 
that's not the team we're on anymore. And we shouldn't be surprised by that because the Bible tells us it's going to be that way. The nations rage and they plot against the people of God. And if you follow Jesus, you're going to face opposition. It happens when the gospel reaches a new people and the local religious leaders are threatened in that community. The, the missionaries that we are begging God, we're, we're praying at North Roanoke and have been since 2017. We're praying for God to raise up five or more missionary units to be on the ground or in training by 2030. And it's happening, by the way. Some of them are already here. They very well may face opposition as they serve on the front lines of gospel advance. That should be included in how we pray. They will face opposition, and yet we know on the authority of God's Word and from this text that our victorious King goes with them. You say, well, that's out there in pioneer mission territory. I'm here to tell you there's opposition right here as well. If you belong to Jesus, there's opposition. It's in the home. There's opposition in the home of every parent and grandparent trying to raise the next generation to love and follow Jesus. It happens to Christian moms and dads who are striving to raise their children in the gospel and then boom, their, their child stumbles into a wormhole on the internet that threatens to overtake them. It happens even when good things overtake God things. Sports and dance and popularity and good grades and fun and we start to pursue these lesser goods rather than God who is great, and we invert what's most important, and then our children graduate from high school, and they go to college, and we wonder, why don't they prize and love Jesus? Because we didn't show them what it's like to prize and love Jesus. And Satan is more than happy for you to coast through life and let your child come to youth group and to church every now and again, and then wonder when they're 22 what happened to their life. Satan is behind that opposition. He doesn't want you to follow King Jesus. It, it happens to, to Christian spouses who are striving to live as examples of the faithfulness of Christ in a, in a world where marriage is ridiculed, is antiquated, and anti-freedom. And you get these messages through social media and television and everywhere else. There's opposition and hostility. And yet, we can remain faithful to a God who is faithful to us and always working behind the scenes. Church, sometimes we see the hostility. Sometimes we see the plotting. But, but sometimes, like in Paul's case here, we don't even know anything about it. Should, should this not drive us to pray? See, why, why do we pray? I don't understand prayer. If you could see the opposition that you're facing, you'd pray. If you knew the plotting of the plotters against your life and against your effectiveness and against the glory of King Jesus that's coming at you from every angle, you'd pray. It's everywhere. It's constant. And yet, praise God, we have a God who is aware of what we are not aware of. It should drive us, church, to, to cry out to our King. It should drive us to cry out in desperation for our kids and our marriages and our church and for our pastors. It should drive us to our Bibles, where we can encounter Christ and be reminded of God's truth in a torrential world that is set against Christ and His people. Do we, do we realize how radical it is to be called by God to belong to Christ and be on mission for Him in a world that is set against Him? The idea 
that has crept into the church that we can blend the agenda of the world and the agenda of our king is nowhere to be found in the Bible. And it is nowhere to be found in Acts. You can't have one foot in the world and one foot in in the truth of the gospel. You're either all in for the gospel or you're all in for the world. You try to live a divided life, you end up defeated. We're in an unseen battle, church. I want to beg you and urge you to pray with confidence and with boldness that God would keep us and protect us and lead us to pursue His mission And I want us to do that because of what we read next in verses 16 through 22. Would you hear with me the word of the Lord? Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. The the next thing I want you to see, church, this morning is our sovereign king works behind the scenes through ordinary means to accomplish his purposes. You say, that rhymed. I was a poet and I didn't know it. Our our sovereign king, our all-controlling King, our King who is Lord over all, works behind the scenes through ordinary means. In other words, He doesn't always use a miracle. Sometimes He uses everyday Joes in everyday life. In fact, He's working through that all the time to accomplish His purposes. When we get to verse 16, uh, it seems like the assassins are going to win, right? I mean, they've got a good plan. It seems like they have a fail-safe plan to hinder Jesus' mission and stop his plan to get Paul to Rome. Seems like they're finally going to shut the gospel down. But they were not thinking about King Jesus, who is working behind the scene. Where would we be, church, without a, a God who works behind the scene? Where would we be if, if our God was only working when, he, when we saw him show up and do something extraordinary? Would we not be dead? <laughs> Colossians 1.17 tells us that Jesus is holding the universe together. That doesn't seem very remarkable to us. We just take it for granted. We wake up, the sun is shining, gravity is holding us down on the floor, we're able to get in and take a shower, everything works according to plan. That is all because Jesus is holding it all together. God is at work, even in the mundane, even in that which we would not consider to be miraculous. And if the assassins have their way, Paul is going to be ambushed and killed in less than 24 hours because they want to eat. And in this text, there are no miracles in sight. Do you see any miracles in this passage? There's not one. 
There's not even the mention of God's name in the verses that we just read. And yet Luke tells us from the beginning of the book of Acts that he is writing about the continuing work of the ascended Lord Jesus Christ. And we can see his fingerprints on this text. We, we just read about the work of Jesus and, and we are seeing that he is sovereign over the mundane whether he is named or not. We don't know how, but somehow Paul's nephew overhears the plan to assassinate Paul. This is, by the way, Luke's only direct mention of Paul's family. So Paul apparently, get to Acts 23, apparently Paul has a sister. When he shows up to Jerusalem, we don't hear about Paul trying to visit his sister or his nephew. Maybe he did, we don't know. But boom, Paul's got a nephew, he's got a sister who apparently got married, and now she's got a nephew. And her nephew helps Paul, indicating that they are likely believers and a part of the Jerusalem church. In, in any event, Paul, and excuse me, Paul's nephew, who's, who goes unnamed and is simply called a young man in verse 17, he somehow hears about the plot and he goes to Paul. I, I think it's fascinating and encouraging that Paul's nephew is young. He's specifically identified as, as young. So the young tribune, excuse me, so he's so young that the tribune takes him by the hand in verse 19. Do you see it? In verse 19, he's like, come over here, tell me privately what you have to share. Why, why do I care that, that the nephew is young? Because God uses young people to accomplish his will. Perhaps the assassins overlooked Paul's nephew because of his age. Perhaps they underestimated. Maybe he was right there when they were sharing the plan and they're like, oh, he's a young guy, he doesn't know, he doesn't care. We ought not underestimate young people. Perhaps his youthfulness is why he was even allowed to see Paul at all. Like, how does, he, how does somebody get to go in the barracks and see Paul? <laughs> oh, he's just a kid. Won't hurt anything. No, he just saves his uncle's life. And, and this unnamed nephew becomes a, a huge part of God's plan to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. We don't even know his name. Who knows how God might use you in somebody's life? If you just be attentive and pay attention and be obedient. I think we live in a culture, and sometimes we even do it in a church, that underestimates young people. We do it by setting the bar of expectations way too low, thinking that they can't ever rise to the challenge and learn the books of the Bible and memorize Scripture. Well, they'll do that when they're in their 20s. Really? You know the best time to memorize? The best time to memorize between age 5 and 13? Between 5 and 13, the human brain loves memory work. It's like fun for them. And then we got a whole culture out there. It's like, well, don't, don't make kids memorize because you're going to drill it and then you're going to kill their spirit. No, you're not. The brain was made to memorize in prime time. And do you think God might know that? Deuteronomy chapter 6, what does he say to do? Deuteronomy 6, walk around with the Bible with your kids, put it on the doorpost, print it everywhere, put scripture everywhere, get in front of them everywhere, sing it everywhere. We got we to stop underestimating our, our kids. I tell you, the scripture that I still know the best is the scripture I knew before I was 10 years old. Something happens when we get older, does it not? 
Now, we're still supposed to be memorizing, but it takes me five times as long to memorize a scripture verse as it did when I was six. I just got it. Man, we should be pouring life and truth into our kids when they're young. Anyway, that was for free. Um, Whatever the reason, the Lord doesn't use a miracle to deliver Paul in this text. He uses an unnamed nephew. He uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong, 1 Corinthians 1.27. He, he works in ordinary things and through ordinary and overlooked people to bring about an extraordinary deliverance of Paul, almost entirely without Paul's participation. I mean, what does Paul do? He's just sitting in the barracks. Nephew walks in, he's like, hey, come here, take my nephew to the tribune. That's all Paul does to affect his own deliverance. And what is interesting to me is the accuracy of the nephew's report in verse 21. The language in verse 21 is almost identical to the language of the assassins themselves when they hatched their plot. And for the third time, this is significant, for the third time we learn about their oath not to taste anything until they kill, until they kill Paul. Why, why three times? Because they're, they're dead set on affecting Paul's death. The assassins are essentially fasting, are they not? And they're not fasting because they have a hunger for God, but they have a desire to be filled by foiling God's plan. They think it's going to be spiritual food for them to stop what God is doing. So Paul faces more than 40 assassins who pronounce a curse upon themselves not to eat until they've satisfied their corrupted hearts by consuming him. They had seemingly a great plan to dupe the tribune by conspiring with the Jewish elders and convincing him they're finally going to get him the information that he needs to be done with Paul and the Paul issue and to move on. But the king of kings is still working behind the scenes. By verse 22, the tribune knows about their plan. And he protects the nephew, telling him to leave and tell no one. And and we're beginning to see that the assassin's plotting is just plain asinine. It's pointless because plotters are powerless to prevent King Jesus from fulfilling his plan. The plotters are powerless to prevent King Jesus from fulfilling his plan. We have a king who is on the throne. We have a king who is over all things. We have a king who, yes, he can work in the miraculous, but not just there. He can work in the mundane. We have a king who can use one young nephew to thwart the schemes of more than 40 murderous men. We belong to a king who conquers. Knowing this, King David, back in Psalm 2 verse 1, asked this question. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? His point is this. No human plotting is going to stop God's plan. No human plotting is going to stop his plan to exalt his king and deliver those who trust in Jesus. And that's exactly what we're seeing in this text. The fulfillment of Psalm 2 verse 1. The assassins plot, but they plot in vain. Some little unnamed nephew foils the whole thing. Marita, Tony Marita in his commentary on Acts urges us, In light of this text, this is what he says, marvel at God's sovereignty here. This story illustrates the seamless integration between God's sovereign agenda and human decisions made by responsible people. 
The Lord already promised Paul he would get to Rome, but God preserves Paul through the actions of individuals. The nephew hears the conspiracy. He relates it to Paul. Paul acts wisely. The Roman centurion does his job, and then the tribune acts to protect Paul. There are no burning bushes. There are no parting seas. There are no light shows. Paul is spared as a result of people simply doing what's in front of them. God uses people's actions to accomplish His purposes. And church, a king who works not just in the miraculous, but in the mundane and in the minutiae of our lives, is a king in whom we can rest. Jesus is our rest. He is our Sabbath. Why? Because He's working even when we don't see it, even when we don't feel it, even when we don't know it. He's alive and He's working. When we face trials, when we face adversity and opposition that we are powerless to stop, that seems like it just keeps coming like wave after wave, God is still in control and He's still in charge. Our job is not just to believe that He can work a miracle It is to rest in a marvelous God who is always at work, even in the middle of the mundane. It is to pray with an awareness of the unseen battles around us and to rely on God as our strength day by day by day. I was at a a conference this summer, and there was a song, you might know it, there's a line in the song that says, I believe in your name miracles can happen. And yes and amen. (laughs) I believe in your name. Miracles can happen. Sorry, that's how it goes. Uh, That's a great truth. Not, not Not because I make God do it. I can't make a miracle happen in my name. I can't just believe a miracle into existence. I'm not talking about the health, wealth, prosperity gospel. But I believe God in His name, in His authority, in His power, whenever He wants to, can do whatever He wants to for the glory of Christ through His people. No doubt about it. But my concern is that that doesn't happen in Paul's life when he's in the Roman barracks. And if he only believes in the God who works in the miraculous, Paul would be undone. If he's sitting around waiting for a miracle, Paul would have given up hope a long time ago. What about the God who's still working in the middle of your mess? You believe God's working in the middle of your mess? People who have neglected you or abandoned you or a family crisis or situation or a diagnosis. Is God still alive? Is He still working? Is He still fulfilling His purposes? Is He still going to be true to His plan? Is He still going to glorify Christ and use you in whatever way is going to bring maximal glory to the King of kings in the end of eternity? Yes. So I think we need to sing more than just, I believe in your name, miracles can happen. Why don't, why don't we sing, I believe in your name, in this mess of my life you hold me. How about, I believe in your name, no matter what, there's victory. How about, I believe in your name, the plots unseen are failing. How about, I believe in your name, this laundry that's in front of me is worth it. How about, I believe in your name, this season is going to shape me. How about, I believe in your name, I'm listening to this below-average sermon from a below-average preacher in a gym with retrofitted audio-visual equipment to awaken me to just how big and incredible and awesome God is and what a privilege it is to belong to the King whose name is above every other name and whose purposes and plan will surely prevail even on my worst day when I'm not feeling it. 
Our sovereign king is at work on behalf of his children and his church in the normal stuff of life. And as we're going to see in the last little bit of chapter 35, I mean chapter 23 through verse 35, we're going to see King Jesus can also advance his purposes and protect his people in some unlikely ways. So he's at work behind the scenes, but he can also work in some unusual and unlikely ways. Let's look at verse 23 and following. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen and go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency the governor, Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him. It's not quite how I remember it, but anyway. Having learned that he was a Roman citizen and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving of death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So... The soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. It's about halfway to Caesarea. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. The last thing I want us to see quickly is there's no earthly power that King Jesus can't use to protect his people and advance his purposes. Not the United States government, not the Syrian government, not the Russian government. There's no earthly power that God can't use to protect his people and advance his purposes because he has all authority, right? Matthew 28, The Great Commission, what does he send us out with? With his presence, and by the way, he's got all authority. There might be authorities who think they're in authority over the authority, but they're not. And and he can do whatever he wants. He can use a Roman militia to protect Paul and get him on his first leg to Rome. Though the Tribune has been a bit clueless to this point, unable to figure out what Paul has done and nearly having him beaten before figuring out he's a Roman citizen, he realizes... Newsflash, Jerusalem is not a safe place for Paul anymore. And so what does he do? He arranges, verse 24, to bring, Felix, to bring Paul safely to Felix, the governor of, of the Judean region. There are two realities that undergird this tribune's actions. First, Paul is an innocent Roman citizen. The tribune is concerned for his safety, and as we see in his letter, he doesn't think that Paul has done anything, do you see at verse 29, deserving of death or imprisonment. Once again, we see parallels between the life of Jesus and the life of Paul. Like Jesus, Paul is detained, and yet he's deemed innocent by the governing powers. But the tribune is motivated motivated by more than just Paul's innocence and his Roman citizenship. He's also trying to protect his job and his reputation. Peterson says this, the tribune is the one being blamed for the public uprising in Jerusalem. So he has Paul taken to Caesarea because his job is to keep 
the peace. We, we know the tribune is concerned for his reputation because of how he writes the letter. Did you catch that in verse 27? He says, the, the Jews were giving him a hard time, and because he was a Roman citizen, I saved him. Is that, is that how that went down? Not, not quite, right? He conflates some events to make himself look like the hero of the story. This, this sometimes clueless tribune makes himself out to be a leader in perfect control. Lysias, the tribune, will not be the only flawed governing official that we meet over the next few chapters in Acts. We see his character flaws on full display, and we're going to see more character flaws along the way. The, the character flaws of the Roman leaders and the, the length of time that it takes for Paul to actually get a hearing and then get to Rome, it, it proves to us that God can use, listen to this church, this is encouraging, God can use flawed leaders and a flawed legal system to protect Paul and accomplish his will. Aren't you glad to know that things don't have to go perfectly for a perfect God to be in perfect control? Think on that for a second. Do you believe that? Because in my mind, if things aren't going perfectly, then where's God? That's, that's my fleshly default. But what we're seeing in this text is things don't have to go perfectly for a perfect God to be in perfect control. God is still winning. He's still working. He's still moving. The tribune doesn't know about Jesus' plan to get Paul to Rome. But King Jesus can even use clueless, self-serving governing officials to advance his purposes. Is that not a relief in these United States of America to know that God can use self-serving governing officials who are clueless to advance his purposes? Anybody watch the news lately? I mean, praise God. He can use self-serving, clueless governing officials to advance his purposes. No matter who's in the White House, God's still working. He's still got a plan. His people still have a calling and a commission and a work to do. Jesus certainly uses the tribune. As Peterson writes, by rescuing Paul, he puts Paul one step closer to Rome, and he also brings about his final separation from Jerusalem. We won't see Paul in Jerusalem anymore. The, the tribune has his reasons, and Jesus has his reasons. Jesus uses the tribune like a travel agent and an Uber all wrapped up into one. The, the tribune arranges the first leg of Paul's trip and he includes a military detail to boot, entirely covered, by the way, at Rome's expense. The church didn't have to collect an offering to get Paul to Caesarea. Nobody had to go, well, how are we going to get him there? They're like, hey, how about some mounts, some horses for Paul to ride on because he's been beat up recently, so he's probably going to need to ride, not walk. And how about we give you a protective military detail on the way? And, and here's a principle we need to grab as a church. While God's work is usually funded through the generous giving of His people, we see in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament examples of secular governments funding an advance of God's purposes by helping God's people with no strings attached. Did you catch that? We see it with the Edict of Cyrus, and we see it right here. Rome is funding getting Paul closer to Rome. And what do we do in such instances? Do we say, well, that money's from the government, therefore we're not going to take it. We know, we, we say, thank you very much. Appreciate you helping me get to Rome. We receive God's blessing with thanksgiving, understanding that our God can provide in all sorts of ways. 
In this case, the Tribune calls for a strong military presence to protect Paul. F.F. Bruce says the military assets were essentially heavy infantry, cavalry, and light-armed troops. Gaventa adds this, Only a large force traveling secretly at night can hope to deliver Paul from a city that is now set upon his destruction. It had seemed that Paul was less than 24 hours from being murdered, but now he's being moved out of Jerusalem with great protection. They leave no earlier than 9 p.m., the third hour of the night. Paul, who has recently been beaten by the angry crowds at the temple, is no condition, in no condition to walk far. So the tribune gives him these, these mounts to ride along the way to see Felix the governor. His eventual destination is Caesarea which is the headquarters of the Roman military, about 70 miles from Jerusalem. When the military detail gets to the halfway point at Antipatris, they turn back and send the horsemen along with Paul. And when they get to Caesarea, the letter is delivered to Felix, and and Paul is presented to him. Most likely the letter would have been read aloud, which is how Paul is able to report to Luke what the letter said. And Governor Felix reads the letter, and the first thing he wants to know, I love this, He's not much different from the Tribune. The first thing he wants to know is where is Paul from? What province is he from? Why? Because he wants to pass Paul off too. He wants to be done with the Paul problem. I don't want to deal with this. When he finds out that he's from Cilicia, he discovers that he can't send Paul on to Cilicia. Cilicia didn't require that natives had to be sent back to them for trial. Moreover, The governor of the Roman province of Cilicia didn't want to be bothered with minor cases from little old Judea. In other words, Felix got to hear the case. So he commits to a hearing whenever Paul's accusers should arrive. And in the meantime, he orders Paul protected in Herod's praetorium. From Paul's perspective, as we near the end of this message in this text, from Paul's perspective, it may not seem like things are going very well. And yet, we can stand outside the text and we can see that our king has been working in it all. He's been at work in the nephew. He's been at work through the tribune and the soldiers. And now, through Felix in Caesarea, Merida summarizes it this way. God has an infinite number of options for working out His will in our lives. While our daily lives may not look spectacular, we can be assured that God is involved in the affairs of His people. Beloved, We are in a battle, but we are not in the battle alone. The king is with us. He's working behind the scenes. He goes before us, and he can use even a flawed governing official. He can even, if he so desires, deploy a military protective detail to transport his people wherever he desires. So what is our response to this king? What do we do in light of this text? What is our job? Is not our job to trust, to rest in Him? Is our job not to, can, can you get a picture of Paul in the barracks? He doesn't even know this is going on. What is he doing? Is he, is he not praying to the king that he's just encountered? Is he not holding fast to the promises in, in the Scripture? Is he not pursuing the presence of Christ? And ought we not do the same? Trust that he's working. Lean into his truth and believe with all of our heart that the King of kings and Lord of lords will accomplish his desire for our lives. Even when we don't see a miracle, he's working and he wins. 
Psalm 119.92 says this. If your law, meaning your teaching, your truth, had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Are you hanging on to truth this morning? Is the truth about who Christ is and what He's doing, that He is ruling and reigning in righteousness and going before you right now in the middle of your mess, are you clinging to that truth? If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Brothers and sisters, I pray that God would help us to trust Him in this season and that He would use us however He desires for His glory. Would you pray with me as our worship team comes? God in heaven, we thank you that you are high, that you are mighty, that you are lifted up, that you are ruling and reigning, and that nothing catches you by surprise. We thank you that in every detail, you're there. And God, we ask that you would help us to rest in that. God, give us the posture of Paul who, he's been beaten, he's faced adversity, And yet, you hold him. You sustain him. God, hold us and sustain us. And give us the assurance and the renewed passion for your will for our lives, knowing, God, that nothing is going to stop you from achieving it. Give you praise for who you are. And Lord, we ask this morning, if there's somebody who's been sitting on the sidelines, somebody who's been beat up by their circumstances and lost sight of you, God, today that they would look back to the truth of your word and behold the face of Christ and be renewed in their devotion and followership of you no matter what. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.